the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Where are we, Lionel? Well, Richard, this is a great honour to have you here in Watford, the first time the cycling podcast has ever recorded in Watford. Not even not Watford. This is actual Watford, real Watford. This is not not Watford, in fact, to be to be accurate. I can't believe it. It's such an honour to be here. It's incredible the breathing the air of Watford. What's it like? What do you what do you well, make of it? Um, I can't say I've explored it too much, Daniel. I literally stepped off the train and crossed the road and uh, went into a kind of cafe slash business centre type place. And that's where Lionel and I are perched rather awkwardly at the moment um, and hooked up with you in Berlin. And it's Daniel Freep. Hello, Daniel. What's Hello, chaps. What's the local speciality in Watford? Flat white, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel's oh, got dear. his head in his hands. Oh. It's great, great to be here. It's great to be here. Where's the football ground from here, Lionel? Do you know? Um, well, it's straight up there, uh, uh, probably about a mile's walk from here. Um, this you makes can't great quite radio. see the floodlights. Uh, well, it's straight up the main road from where we are, Richard. I'm, I'm actually here in real life with Richard for the first time since last year's uh, Paris Roubaix. Um, we should explain, yeah, normally Richard's based in northern France, but you've come over to the UK for a visit, and we thought we'd do the podcast face-to-face, and we've been met with a number of challenges today, because there's been a big storm across the UK, and the train that I would have taken from my home base in Not Watford into central London to meet Richard, uh, the trains have all been uh, cancelled, and so I was unable to get into London, so Richard has come to Watford, he's actually come to me here, more or less, and uh, I'm, as I say, I'm very honoured. But you'll see the football ground when you get back on the train to go back to London, Rich. The floodlights will be to your right. Um, yeah, the, the, home of, the home of not terribly good football at the moment, unfortunately. Well, it's a great, it's a great privilege to be here. I mean, every storm cloud has a silver lining, doesn't it? And, and it's, it's, it's brought me to not, not Watford for the first time in my life. Possibly the last. I don't know. Who knows? Um, so enough Watford chat. Daniel, I can see your 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 eyes are glazing over already. So God knows what the listeners are thinking. Uh, there's lots of racing. We haven't to even talk started about. talking about cycling yesterday. Usually my gla- my eyes start glazing over when we talk about cycling. But <laughs> well, what are we going to be talking about in this episode, Daniel? Well, Rich, it's a continuation of the already rip roaring start to the racing season. Um, there have been various races taking place across Europe and further afield over the last few days. We're going to have a bit of a roundup, aren't we? We're going to pick out some of the key talking points. Um, there have been some talking points away from the racing. Um, Chris Froome advocating. Was he advocating that time trials be banned? I hope he was. Um, I suspect it was his point was really restricted to the bikes on which... Um, time trials are ridden um, but he, he suggested that they're dangerous this of course is in the wake of the Egan Bernal accident a couple of weeks ago so we're going to be discussing that should time trial bikes be banned we're also going to be hearing from the manager the head honcho the big kahuna of Jumbo Visma Richard Plugger aren't we about that team season Primoz Roglic and we're going to be hearing from someone who, who has just left Jumbo Visma, George Bennett, and who has sort of been sleeping, or he's sleeping with the enemy, as it were. Um, he's 
linked up with Tadej Pogacar um, at UAE Emirates. And, and George Bennett is about to make his debut, I think, for that team in the next few days at the UAE Tour. Alongside Tadej Pogacar, indeed. Um, Lionel, before all that, do you have a, a news roundup for us, please? I certainly do, Rich. Yes, it's been a week of COVID cases, sprint relegations and a disqualification. I mean, we're getting to a point where it's going to be easier to list the riders who haven't had to pull out of races because of COVID. Uh, just a few of the headlines this week. Richard Carapaz pulled out of the Tour de la Provence. Vincenzo Nibali had to scratch the Ruta del Sol. The entire Le Col Wahoo team is out of the women's Volta Valenciana. And we've just heard this morning that Fernando Gaviria is out of the UAE Tour which is an unwelcome flashback two years ago um, when pro cycling and COVID first collided. Gaviria was one of the first high-profile cases, wasn't he, and spent quite a bit of time in hospital. Uh, it feels this like... This is his third positive That's test. right. Um, he's been really unfortunate. He will be replaced in the UAE Team Emirates lineup by Pascal Ackerman. Not a bad replacement in sprinting terms. We're going to discuss the racing in the first part. There has been a lot of racing going on. Um, it strikes me as no coincidence that the teams at the bottom scrapping for their World Tour licenses. Cofidis, Lotto, Antamarche and Arkea Samsic have all been impressive in the early weeks of the season. At the Tour de la Provence in southern France, Naira Quintana of Arkea Samsic won there for the second time in his career. He won the final stage on the Montagne de Lure to dislodge Filippo Ganna, who had led since the opening time trial. Ganna was then disqualified. We are pretty certain for an illegal bike change where he took a different bike from a predetermined point on the side of the road rather than from the team car. He didn't appear in the final results. Also in the south of France, Elia Viviani got his first win back with Ineos. Uh, They were Team Sky when he last rode for them, of course. That was probably the most eye-catching day of racing because the crosswinds in the Camargue really split things to bits. And Brian Cocker has got more wins for Cofidis this month than he's managed in the past two years. Meanwhile, at the Tour of Oman, a big win for Jan Hurt of Antamarche. He and Fausto Masnada won the two um, hillier, more challenging stages. Mark Cavendish is off the Jan, mark. Jan put everyone in the hurt locker. Oh, excellent. I missed that one. Um, Mark Cavendish is off the mark, getting his first race win of the season. Um, but he had a funny old final day. He was docked some points for pushing off the medical car three times during the stage. He was then impeded in the final sprint by uh, Max Ricciese of UAE Team Emirates, whose teammate Gaviria won just as he had on the first day of the race. More success for UAE at the Vuelta Mercia, where Alessandro Covi gave them a 1-2 ahead of his teammate Matteo Trentin. Alexander Kristoff, another Antomarche rider, won the Classica Almeria. And king of the gravel, Alexi Luxenko, won the Classica Hayen Parezo. Now, the big question we'll discuss is whether that is a performance worthy of the cycling podcast performance of the year, powered by Cassiolet, currently held by Brandon McNulty, of course. The racing's carrying on. It's the holiday swing this weekend, isn't it, with the Ruta del Sol and the Tour of the Algarve. You can almost taste the sangria and sardines. Uh, We'll talk about how those races have got underway. There was another uh, relegation in the sprint for Jordi Meus in Algarve, where Fabio Jakobsen won his third race of the season. Away from the racing, a few headlines to run through. The Tour de France wildcards have been confirmed. Alpecin Phoenix, Arkea Samsic, and then the two French teams, B&B Hotels and Total Energies, will join the rest of the World Tour teams at the Tour de France. 
some big news for Milan Sanremo because the Turquino is back after two years and the race will also start at the legendary Vigorelli Velodrome. Confirmation that there will be women's under 23 world titles on the road from this season with standalone events coming in 2025. Uh, Matt White went to the Super Bowl. Did you see that? He was supporting the LA Rams. I saw that on social media. I hope he had a good time there. Our very good friend Simon Gill has finished third in a photography competition run by Strava, the year in sport competition. His picture of a mud cake, Tosh van der Sander, from the end of Peru Bay, took third place. His second podium finish for Simon in photography competitions, just with his pictures from Peru Bay alone, because he was also third in a competition before Christmas with his picture of Lizzie Dignan celebrating her win in Roubaix. And three other talking points uh, cyclocross there's a, a race in Belgium a super prestige race where they trialed uh, drone footage flying behind Lucinda Brand the eventual winner of the race and the drone was uh, banned from competition midway through on the technicality that uh, the organizer had not got prior permission from the UCI but from March the 1st drones will be allowed to film cyclocross races as long as the organizers uh, get clearance in the first place and it seems to me that's a good environment to try out uh, drone photography at races what do you reckon have either of you chaps seen any of this 8g um, i think it's 8g camera footage that's being used in the spanish football league for when the players come out on the pitch it kind of makes everyone look as though they're sort of figurines in fifa 2022 um, it's I, I have not curious. seen that. I wonder if we'll see. But is that where no. we're going? Because it's it, so we're sort of seeing enhanced, sort of filtered images coming through our TV screens sometime soon, are we? Possibly, yes. So rather than the Zwift graphics getting more and more realistic, real life is just going to get more and more computerized. Is that the that the trend? Crossover at some point. Yeah. I mean, I can certainly see a place for drones in the filming of cycling, but we also need to be a little bit wary in this rush. I mean, imagine how loud the outcry will be if there were to be some kind of incident. You know, the first time a a drone drops out of the sky into the middle of a race, um, or heaven forbid, uh, were to collide with a rider just through operator error, um, you know, it's another variable, isn't it? It's another... um, unpredictable factor being introduced into proceedings so I'm, I don't really blame the authorities for there proceeding a, with caution here yeah there have been um, a couple of incidents or there was certainly one incident in skiing drone footage has been experimented with in skiing in uh, a slalom in 2015 there was a, a drone that dropped out of the sky and hit a, a, a skier um, I don't know sort of what the postscript to that was. I, I haven't been watching too much of the Winter Olympics. I'm not sure if you've, if you've been able to sort of ascertain, tell whether the drones have been used there. I'm I not don't know, sure. Rog, Roglic got a bronze, I think, in uh, the ski <laughs> jumping. <laughs> yeah, um, but just on danger and drones. Oh, sorry, Lionel, did you have another punchline there? Uh, on danger and drones, you know, in the long term, could we not see drones also replaced? tv cameras on motorbikes and even stills cameras on motorbikes and and actually take the motorbikes out of the race which would remove one potential and and real danger and and then the longer longer term could we see drones carrying spare bikes <laughs> you know just take all the vehicles well, do you know who we should ask out? 
you know who we should ask about this? Our good friend Gianni Savio, because his oh, yes. team is now sponsored by um, a, a Spanish manufacturer of drones for, for in, industrial uses mainly. In fact, there have been some really interesting articles in the Spanish press about um, the military purposes and that these particular drones are being used for. So perhaps Gianni would be able to provide some insight into this. And any drone experts out there want to give us their take on the practicalities or the, the sort of um, the timescale for seeing drones being replacing some of the vehicles in races, motorbikes in particular. We'd love to hear from you. Why not go the whole hog and just replace the riders with drones? <laughs> anyway, anyway, uh, enough droning on. Uh, two more little items of news. Uh, sticking with the cyclocross, Toon Airs has tested positive for a metabolite of a breast cancer drug. Uh, this test was taken 10 days before the World Championships where he finished sixth. Uh, there's no medical use for letrozole in men, apparently, and it's banned because it can be used to mask the effects of anabolic steroids and other things, uh, but Airs will have a chance to uh, plead his case and uh, I, w- I was reminded yesterday chaps by a good friend and colleague of ours Jan-Peter de Vliga a Belgian journalist that this is the same substance that um, the Italian tennis player uh, Sara Erani um, tested positive for her in well, one of her defenses initially memorably was that the um, a-, a pill had dropped into her mum's tortellini um, she was making some lovely field pasta um, at home, I think somewhere in central Italy, and um, she thought that maybe they had been contaminated. Wow. And finally, Domenico Pozzavivo, who rode last year for Quebec and Next Hash and had not got a contract for this season, has signed for Antamarche. He is 39 years old and turned pro back in 2005, but another year, one more year for Pozzavivo. Um, and uh, we'll have to see if he lines up at the Giro d'Italia a little bit later on this season. When he turned professional in 2005, he also had a different name. He was also called Pozzavivo then. And he changed his name by whatever the Italian equivalent of Depol is. Um, because Puzzo Viva means sort of lively stink. Um, and it now means sort of lively well. Puzzo Viva is more lively wishing well. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thanks very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. We're very grateful to them for their support across all of our podcasts. Uh, Last year, we ran a couple of competitions for listeners to win three months worth of Super Sapiens devices. One of those winners was Ed Pugh. His wife, Jane, had uh, nominated him for his work during COVID. He's an anaesthetist in a hospital in Newcastle. And Ed got his three months worth of Super Sapiens. Let's hear a little bit more about how he got on with them. My name's Ed. I've just turned 40 and I work as an anaesthetist. When I've been doing uh, Zwift riding, which is fairly sort of high intensity for me most of the time, 
Uh, I've been really interested to see that my blood glucose drops very dramatically when my uh, at the sort of higher end of my uh, exercise, if I'm doing the sort of the zone five maximum heart rate, um, which for me is pretty much 100% of the time on Zwift. Um, so it's 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 really shows a significant dip down if I don't fuel myself. So I've been looking at how I can fuel what what with and what time to sort of make sure that I'm not getting those dips, which will probably feed through to, uh, you know, poor, poor performance as the time goes on. So that's how I've been kind of using it at the moment. I've not been doing as much sort of endurance riding just because of the uh, sort of winter conditions, but I'm planning to do a, uh, a longer ride coast to coast later this year. So I'll be definitely interested in fueling to stop uh, to make sure that i can actually complete that in one piece in one day well chaps there's been so much racing uh provence already seems like quite a long time ago but we should maybe start with provence nairo man we've seen him in this kind of blistering form in the early season in the past um and he showed it again it's part of a trend nairo man no es un ciclista es nairo man second verse I, no, I think they're the only lyrics. Um, this I can't remember the name of the commentator, but this this um, has become a famous refrain on Colombian TV. Nairo man, Nairo man. He's not a cyclist. He's Nairo man. <laughs> Being the translation. Well, he was a very good cyclist in Provence and uh, rode very well. But it's part of this trend that we're seeing at the moment, or this uh, this phenomenon in the early part of the season of very strong starts from these teams that we expect to be scrapping for world tour licenses Arkea Samsic he rides for but Anter Marche have been on fire Alexander Christophe in Almeria Jan Hurt in Oman um, they've started the year very strongly is there any explanation for that beyond this expected battle for the world tour licenses and what did you make Daniel of Nairo Man in Provence well, as far as Nairo Man is concerned, I think he and his team and pretty much everyone else was quite surprised because he had COVID quite badly over the winter and suffered quite a lot and lost at least a couple of weeks of training. And he's really um, coming to the season with a bang. Uh, a similar performance to the one we saw from him on Mont Ventoux, also in the Tour de Provence when he last won it. But it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Just... Thinking about him coming into the last year of this three-year contract with Arkea, which was sort of supposed to propel them towards the world tour and really the next level in every regard. And it, it kind of has done that. And it, he has been, well, I think he's settled relatively well and he's made a lot of effort to integrate himself. But there are still those who will say that they haven't, Arkea haven't got out of him everything that they wanted and expected. And, you know, even at the weekend, um, the team manager, Emmanuel Hubert, talked about Naira still thinking that he could win the Tour de France, still wanting to win the Tour de France. And Hubert's uh, words in response to that were, I'm not going to be the guy to, to shatter his dreams, which sounded a bit like sort of backhanded, well, I don't know, um, fatalism, really. Um, but that's Quintana's conviction. Um, I mean, what in the sort of final analysis at this stage, 
two and a bit years into this three-year deal, which was supposedly, you know, there was a package with other riders and, and support staff arriving as well. Um, supposedly five million euros a year. I mean, do you think it's been a success or a failure? And I mean, do you think he, he could stay there beyond this season? I mean, he started off in 2020 very, very well for them. And I think we could see also through the, the famous movie star Netflix documentaries how at times he was a square peg in a, a round hole at movie star. And, and I think we thought that in a new environment, we might see the best of Nairo Man. And 2020 started really well. Um, and I remember we were talking about him uh, finally, perhaps, fulfilling that that potential that he had and um, with RKS Samsic then of course COVID came along we pretty much lost the season he wasn't the same uh, when we when racing resumed and he had a poor year last year um, but he did look very good I mean okay it wasn't a, a very deep uh, field there was Julian Alaphilippe uh, putting up a challenge but it wasn't a field full of top climbers certainly not full of Tour de France contenders so it's difficult to judge but he, he did look very good um, very punchy very dynamic um, because we've often in the past bemoaned the fact that you know he's not been that sort of rider he's more of a diesel um, but here he was on the attack really laying it down and um, he looked good and that's all we can really go on at the moment isn't it he, he did indeed Rich and, and one thing you know we've always said about Quintana is that he's a fighter and he's fought through a lot of adversity, whether it be injuries or, you know, people kind of losing faith in him over the last few years. And um, he always clings on, you know, at the Tour de France. He, he's a guy who almost never abandons races. And, you, you know, I haven't got the list in front of me, but if you sort of enumerate all of the, the summit finishes that he's won in his career, I mean, it's, it's an incredible collection of some really kind of um, mythical, legendary climbs in the sport. And, you know, the Montagne de Lourdes is not, a particularly famous mountain in cycling, but it is a kind of famous mountain in Provence. And it's another um, it's another feather in his cap that's been added. Yeah, I mean, as you say, Rich, echoes of 2020 when he won the Tour de la Provence and then followed it up with overall victory in the Tour des Alpes-Maritimes et du Var and then with a stage win at Paris-Nice, uh, which was then curtailed as COVID swept across Europe, wasn't it? And we, I remember talking at the time about maybe this is Quintana, uh, as you say, unshackled from Movistar uh, without that pressure of being part of a trident um, or, or having you know too much responsibility uh, on his shoulders in a in a, a sort of part of a team, I guess, uh, an, an undisputed leadership role. But these are smaller races, aren't they? And we've seen over the last couple of lockdown-affected years um, that you know when it's come to the Tour de France, he's well, he's had some bad luck. I mean, crashed as well, hasn't he? Um, and sort of struggled through one of those tours but he's 32 now so it's you know it's it's an encouraging start to the season but I don't think it necessarily says that he'll be a, a grand tour force this year when it comes to the overall but certainly a, a very dangerous rider um, in the mountains and you know, potential stage winner but what else caught the eye in Provence because we were in a very unusual situation for one reason or another where we we actually watched stage one uh, which was split to ribbons by the crosswinds and won by Elia Viviani uh, as it swept around the windswept Camargue. We watched that together, didn't we? And we were chatting away whilst the cycling was unfolding on the screen in front of us. It was a, a most enjoyable experience that afternoon. And 
as we were talking about that race, it, it was basically served up to Viviani, wasn't it? Given an armchair ride uh, to the finish. I mean, he would have uh, had some questions to answer had he not finished that one off. But nevertheless, uh, a good victory for Viviani for Ineos. And then what's happened to Brian Cockar? You're talking about the relegation-threatened teams. Akofidis are one of those. And Kokar has... Well, he's hit the ground running this season, hasn't he? Um, after a couple of barren years. And then there was a curious disqualification for Ghana on the final day. Sorry, I was just going to say, Lionel, on Kokar, he's had these, these wins, but arguably as, if not more impressive, his second place to Jakobsen on the first day in Algarve yesterday. We are recording on Thursday, so that race is still going on, but a really remarkable, I don't want to skip ahead and we'll go back to Ghana in a moment, but a really remarkable finish to that stage with um, uh, Remco Evenepoel doing doing real damage, at one point pulling four quick-step riders away from everybody else. Um, Jakobsen, a similar experience to Viviani on stage one in Provence, where he really had to win, and he did very convincingly, but it was a, it was a real fight to to get to be in contention for that sprint finish and Cockar did extremely well to be there which suggests that it's not flash in the pan he's he's raised his level he's going extremely well um and yeah Cofidis the resurgence of Cofidis another another of the plot lines but yeah Ghana um Ghana apart from the disqualification for the illegal bike change uh looked very good as well and um is one of the bright spots of the Ineos early season, which hasn't had loads of bright spots, but Ghana's form certainly one of them. I mean, the grave danger at this time of year, and this will speak to you, uh, Lionel, it applies to Nairoman and it applies to Ghana, um, is that people will speculate and extrapolate to an, an, a disproportionate sort of degree. And as far as Ghana is concerned, people might look notwithstanding his disqualification, they might look at his performance on the final day, on the final climb, Montagne de Lourdes, when he finished about a minute behind Quintana de Nil, a little bit more than a minute. And this will crank up the hype machine or the speculation about possibly Ghana becoming some kind of GC rider in the future. And he's even sort of vaguely alluded to that possibility. Um, I mean, I don't know what you chaps think, but the the... the the sort of history, the recent history of professional cycling is scattered with a, a litany of sort of broken dreams, broken or, or parts of careers that have been ruined or to some degree compromised by riders trying to reinvent themselves, whether it be, you know, reinvent themselves as classics riders having been sprinters or reinvent themselves as GC riders having been time trialists. And, you know, I was just thinking about some of the time trialists who have sort of nibbled at this idea of becoming GC riders. You know, Cancellara, Tony Martin, we talked about the other day. Rowan Dennis has, has you know, to a certain extent as well. Uh, Wout van Aert, people would like him to, to try. Um and I just think that it is a bit of a, a vain, a futile pursuit. And I, I ultimately think that will be the case with Ghana as well. Um, you know, it was a, it was one climb at the end of a four-day race. or four, It was four days, wasn't it? Um, I don't really think you can read much or anything into that. I mean, just looking at Ghana's weight, he's 82 kilograms. Yeah, he, he could lose three or four kilos. Um, 
the, the, probably the heaviest Grand Tour riders, Grand Tour winners of the last 20, 30 years have been around about that way. Miguel Indurain, it was a very different time in cycling. And I think that, you know, the capabilities of heavier riders were enhanced um, in that period, shall we say. And um, Francesco Moser won the Giro in 1984. He weighed about the same, 82 kilos. Um, but I don't and he got in a helicopter at one point, didn't he? Is that not the, that's the story, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, Rich, I was thinking, you, you often bring up um, our friend, our colleague, Francois <laughs> Tomaso, um, sort of espousing the theory that the Tour de France is generally won by time trialists. I don't agree with that. But I, I think that maybe that did apply once. It doesn't apply anymore simply because time trials have fallen out of favour and, well, they might fall even further out of favour for reasons we'll discuss when we talk about Chris Froome. But, you know, the, the number of kilometres against the clock has, sh- has shrunk consistently over the years and I don't see us going back to Grand Tours where there are 100 kilometers of time trialing over the three weeks that I, said yeah, but although I, w- I would say can I just can I just uh, say I, d- I don't want to speak for Francois but I don't think he was meaning that they won they won them because of the time trials no. they won them more because of their their capabilities as a time trialist that 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 ability to sustain that effort um can be translated into climbing and it's it's a similar so the physiology is the same true i mean on that time trialists typically these sort of time trialist climbers they typically go well on exactly the kind of stage that we saw on sunday with a a summit finish at the end of a a relatively sort of benign stage we've seen Mm. that before we've we've seen it with dumoulin for example at the giro um and and just well, finally on Ghana, I, I mean, the only thing I can possibly envisage happening is I talked about Moser and 1984. That was really a, a route that had been built for Moser to win the Giro. And, you know, Italy doesn't have a whole kind of nursery of potential of potential Grand Tour winners sort of, you know, budding, um, likely to emerge at any point soon. Could RCS design a, a very, very uncharacteristically flat Giro to try to cater for Ghana at some point in the future that is one possibility just lastly on the Tour de la Provence because you know one of the things that as you were alluding to there Daniel is the difficulty of contextualising these performances I mean Quintana's riding for a French team a team that needs some points um, wants some points to to get that uh, World Tour licence an important race and victory for them but you can kind of look at say Julian Alaphilippe and and use that as almost the baseline performance and uh, you know although Alaphilippe couldn't follow in the crucial moment on the final stage no one's panicking and pulling their hair out about Julian Alaphilippe and suggesting that he's in some way uh, you know off the boil or or off track to be uh, extremely good when his objectives come around a little bit later on this spring so you can kind of put the performances uh, against one another I thought the other eye-catching rides were um, Daniel someone you mentioned while we were watching uh, stage one the Danish rider for Trek Segafredo uh, Matthias Skelmoser and Movistar's duo Matteo Jorgensen and Ivan Sosa who's kind of come back to life after a, a, a fairly unhappy end to his time with Team Ineos so uh, yeah lots of little intriguing threads to pull out over the coming weeks of stage races as we move towards the likes of uh, Paris-Nice and Tirreno-Adriatico next month. Can I just mention as well the, the Classica Jaén Paraiso, is that correct pronunciation, Paraiso. Daniel? Paraiso. Paraiso. 
That was a, a new race, a won by Alexei Lutsenko, um, who we last saw in action in the, the gravel race in Veneto in uh, back in October. There's got to be... The, grav- the, the poster boy of gravel well, racing. Uh, there's got to be some gag, um, but I'm not quick-witted or sharp enough or funny enough to come up with a funny gag, but something that plays on Lutsenko and his starring role in the Astana rap and the Wu-Tang Clan's famous song, Gravel Pit. I don't know what it is. <laughs> wow. But the best listener wow. gag combining those four elements will will reward with a prize. When uh, dinner with, with a, Daniel. Um, but very prescribed menu uh, <laughs> and place. Um, it was it was a really beautiful race to watch, though. An interesting race because it was it was sort of these beautiful, very very extreme rough gravel sections with they they were racing through an industrial estate at one point. On what looked like motorways, um, it, it was it was a kind of uh, it, you could see what they're trying to do. You know, they're trying to create a, a southern Spanish version of Strada Bianca, um, and certainly some elements of it had that same beauty that Strada Bianca has. But um, it seemed to be uh, yeah, the beautiful olive groves and the gravel roads um, mixed up with the, the industrial states and the motorways. Um, so maybe a little bit of work to do but a very encouraging start i thought for that for that race absolutely yeah and let's not forget what he's i called him the king of gravel so far lutsenko because he won la serenissima in italy last year uh, this is another level up and and a kind of a an equivalent to strada bianca as you say and lutsenko's ride was impressive i mean he went away on his own first and then he was caught by some other riders including leonard Kamnet, connor swift tim Vellens was up there as well and uh, there was a moment when he was coming across those uh, slightly sort of town center cobblestones on the final lap, I think it was, uh, where he was tightening up his front wheel skewer whilst riding along, which was pretty wow. impressive. I mean, get that wrong D- and, and your da- and hands in the spokes. Very dangerous, What's yeah. Well, I, I, did, I did that once myself. I was, I was riding along and I spotted some dirt on my fork when I was very young and I thought, I'll just clean that off with my finger. Hands went in the spokes. And oh, oh, over, over, the, over the bike or I went. spinaches. <laughs> They weren't spinaches, thankfully, no. Um, just watching that race and watching Tim Wellens, you mentioned him there, Lionel. Um, he was in the group behind Lutsenko. Remember we used to call Rui Costa the asparagus because he used to sort of flourish in in May and June. It, it struck me <laughs> that maybe, I don't know, Tim Wellens could be the parsnip or something similar. I was going to say yeah, the parsnip. At his best at sort of end of January, <laughs> beginning of Feb. Yeah, winter vegetable and then goes completely off at the start of March that's it <laughs> maybe instead of a, a rolling cassily a rider should be awarded a seasonal vegetable um, for, for different parts of the season well on that subject does Lutsenko's ride trump Brandon McNulty do we have a new leader in the rolling performance of the year award powered by Cassiolet I would say I mean I'll put it to the vote there's three of us mm. we can you know we can kind of well, we've got a majority, the possibility of a majority decision as long as Daniel doesn't sit on the fence, which I can almost already tell from his facial expression he might well <laughs> do. The en- tricky thing is we didn't see an awful lot. in this competition. <laughs> we didn't see an awful lot of McNulty's ride, did we? Because there was only highlights available to watch. But basically it was a 60-kilometer solo break in the Challenge Mallorca. I would say Lutsenko's ride um, was a level above that. And so yeah, he I, is I the new classification leader. 
if only for tightening his skewer while riding. I think that 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 seals the deal for me. Lutsenko is going to be the on on the subject of the the rolling castellet. Is it the rolling castellet? That's what I'm calling it. Um, we had a big response because the discussion last week was around could you be the could you take that award without winning? Is is it possible in cycling to produce an incredible performance but not win? Well, I said no. Um, and Will Ball wrote to agree with me on that, um, although he did have a couple of qualifications. But Dan Smith, Kurt Holzer and Dennis Purcell all um, suggested Andy Hampston on the Gavia during the 1988 Giro d'Italia. Didn't win the Sage, of course, but laid the foundations for his overall win. That's a good shout. Um, a lot and lot of nominations for Tony Martin at the, the, the Vuelta, uh, stage 17. Uh, no, the, what year was it, the Vuelta? Uh, I can't remember now, but Tony Martin. 2013, when um, within 50 metres of winning a stage, was it won by Michael Morkov that stage? Is that correct? I think so. Um, Tony, well, there, there we go. We remember Tony Martin's performance more than the winners that day, so that's a good shout. Christine Barr and Phil Walton were among the many people who um, suggested that. Um, Casey Cesari uh, suggested Egan Bernal, stage 17 of the Vuelta last year. Yep, not a bad shout, although I guess... I would remember Roglic's performance more. And Stuart Snow had a couple of uh, nominations for Richie Port in different races. But, you know, I still stand by uh, my argument that, really, I don't think you can win the Rolling Castle without also winning. But I guess the test will come this season. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Bloomingdale's, Levi's, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. 
being out on my time trial bike this morning and in light of also recent events, time trial bikes are not really meant to be ridden on the roads the way that we need to ride them to be ready for time trials. I mean, if there's a time trial in the Tour de France, say it's an hour long time trial, to be able to get ready for an hour long time trial, you have to get out there on the time trial bike and you have to simulate that. Now, how many roads do you know around you where you can literally ride for an hour in almost closed road conditions where there's no traffic, no, no stop signs, no traffic lights? Those kind of conditions just don't, don't really exist in the real world. When you're on your skis on the time trial bike, you've got no brakes right there. You need to actually sit up. It's not really that safe. I mean, it's one thing when you're racing, when you've got closed roads. Um, and even then we, we see some pretty horrendous accidents. But it's, it's completely another thing um, when you're out on open roads with, with traffic and people crossing the roads. So I guess the point I'm trying to make and the question I want to ask here is, is it really necessary for us to have time trial bikes in road cycling? Well, chaps, I don't know about you, but when I was when my, my attention was was drawn to Chris Froome's latest video, um, and he, I don't know if he sort of made the argument for a ban of time trial bikes or just raised the the possibility. I was rejoicing. I was punching the air because this is an argument I've made before. Um, I'm not a big fan of time trial bikes, and I think the Bernal crash recently highlighted the danger. I saw some footage last week also of the Bernal crash, Colombian TV had got some CCTV footage of Bernal. It's not very clear at all, but you can see the road and you can see what happened that Bernal rode into the back of a bus, as we know. I was quite surprised. I don't know the full detail. We did hear in the podcast from a Colombian journalist about, about the road in question, uh, but it looked a busy sort of dual carriageway type road. Um, a strange place to be time trial training because and people will jump to the defense of time trial bikes i'm sure but a lot of the time when riders are in the time trial position their heads are down they're not looking where they're going um and we saw also at the olympic games not so dangerous on a, on a velodrome of course but we saw the team pursuit at the olympic games an incident where a rider just plowed into the the back of another rider because he wasn't looking where he was going he didn't didn't see the team in front of him and and it's different on a track um, but nevertheless, uh, I think in wind tunnels and so on, riders learn that often the best, most aerodynamic position is with your head down, where you can't see. And thinking back over the years to a number of incidents, remember Miguel Angel Lopez at the Giro in 2020 on day one, um, had a terrible crash on his time trial bike. Extreme conditions that day, very, very windy. It might have been dangerous in any on any bike. And on that day, the, the wheels were obviously a factor too. Um, but there's no question that time trial bikes, in my mind, are more dangerous. And Chris Froome raised this very interesting point about whether time trial bikes should have a place in professional racing. Discuss. Would Here's a question for you chaps. Would manufacturers continue to make them if they were banned in professional cycling? Because obviously you can't... Well, it would be extremely difficult, and I don't see by which mechanism you could do it, um, ban people riding time trial bikes. We, we can only really talk here about competition, UCI um, sanctioned competitions, um, because you know the rule, the the laws of every, uh, are, the laws of the road are different in every country, and so it's very difficult to stop people 
training on them or using them privately. My question to a manufacturer, and, and this is one something we intend to follow up on, uh, would be how valuable are is the time trial bike industry? How valuable is that market? When you think about the costs that must go into research and development um, and the, the size of the market can't be huge. I mean, triathlons, I think they would they would carry on. And but the, the bikes that, you, that use in triathlon are, are a bit different. They're not quite the same as um, time trial bikes used by professionals. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I, I wonder if it might be a bit of a blessing for manufacturers not to have to produce all these time trial bikes. It has been pointed out by a couple of people in teams this week, Rich, that most of the technological developments in road bikes have come from, they've been birthed in the development of time trial bikes. So that's also a consideration. I mean, first of all, the issue with the time trial bike is the the, the aerodynamic uh, handlebars uh, that the riders rest their arms on means that they can't reach the brakes. And so riding them on open roads, uh, the hazard is... Um, magnified, multiplied, because they can't easily reach the brakes. Um, whereas at least if you're riding uh, fast, you know, on open roads, in and around traffic with pedestrians and other obstacles, um, you can reach the, the brakes. They're also more difficult to manoeuvre in a hurry, aren't they? You can't swerve around something whilst in that uh, aerodynamic position as easily. And the fundamental issue is that the... the, the um, the level of performance required in a Grand Tour time trial is such that the riders have to practice in what are pretty extreme body positions on time trials. And they won't all have access to wind tunnels to do this training or they won't all be able to practice to the same degree on a stationary setup. Uh, they do need to practice outdoors. Um, the issue is, you know, is the race for this kind of performance optimization overshadowing the basic principle of watching where you're going i guess i mean that's the fundamental when riding on the road is is being aware of the conditions and you know this is not blaming anyone for for a crash but you know whether racing on closed roads or training on open roads the fundamental priority has to be safety and then performance second and maybe the balance between those two things is getting a little bit out of kilter if they were to ban time trial bikes wouldn't riders still race in extreme positions head down hands on the drops not looking where they're going trying to get as, as aero as possible looking down for prolonged periods and then looking up which we see all the time in time trials so is there a, a, a you know a fundamental problem with having um, time trial bikes or is there a fundamental problem that the the requirements of um, the sport are such that the, the 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 margins are now so tiny that uh, risks are taken to a greater degree I, I gather that there have been some discussions between the UCI and Chris Froome about his comments constructive discussions um, perhaps we'll hear from somebody from the UCI in the coming weeks about this but it's a difficult one to legislate for I would have thought other than saying right take time trial bikes out of competition then there's no need for riders to train on them and that would certainly minimize the risk or it would reduce the risk i would have thought it's it's difficult though chaps isn't it and people always wince slightly or find it uncomfortable when a federation or um, any kind of organization is being seen to put the brakes on um, figuratively in this case uh, press the pause button on technological 
progress and and make things in this case sort of slower i mean we've seen that with the hour record we've seen it in other sports in swimming there was a period of 2008 2009 where there were 100 i think it was 130 world records broken because of um, suit technology swimming trunk technology um and they did eventually swimming um international swimming federations they they did actually in the end put the brakes on that and they had to legislate it quite strictly you know we get this debate in golf all the time about that balls need to be um well they need to be made to not go as far um i mean it's it is tricky because people are watching elite sport because to a certain extent they are signing up to or embracing that kind of olympic the olympic motto of sort of faster what is it faster higher stronger or um, words to that effect that's true but is anyone watching a time trial because they're going at 53 kilometers an hour rather than 49 kilometers an hour i don't know necessarily whether that's the case in road cycling um I certainly think that there is a precedent for banning things. I mean, the, the, the aerodynamicists of today would probably wince at the, the sort of uh, ineffective uh, designs of the past. I mean, in the 80s, there was a real leap forward because of the, um, the materials and the design uh, capability. We saw all sort of fairings behind saddles. We saw the, the spinnergy wheels that you mentioned earlier, Daniel, the kind of uh, four spokes, you know, very uh, bladed spokes double disc wheels, slope, you know, curved top tubes, the spinachi handlebars. There is precedent for outlawing things on the grounds of, of safety. And also, I think the UCI does have a responsibility to ensure that there's a kind of a joined up um, line, not a sudden great jump between, you know, what mere mortals and, and amateurs and, and uh, under 23 and junior riders can do and achieve and what the elite end of the sport. Uh, is doing they, they there has to be a kind of a, you know they within touching distance of one another not just a sort of quantum leap between the technology that's available at the top and then what's available at the next level down so i think there's a lot of different factors at play but chris Froome has started a debate that i think it would be healthier to have out in the open than than kind of get into a uh, banned time trial bikes yes or no i mean it's it's more nuanced than that i think our sister podcast, Service Course, has done a great job of uh, exploring some of these issues around the development of time trial bikes, particularly 3D printed handlebars and so on, because one of the one of the core elements in the UCI's approach to this was that bikes must be commercially available. Um, and we're sort of moving away from that with these highly individualized machines. Um, Ghana, you know, Ghana on his time trial bike is certainly a thing of beauty. Um, there's a, an aesthetic to time trialing that, that a lot of people really enjoy. Um, and I wonder, you know, some of the things you mentioned that have been banned, the actions come quite quickly after the products being introduced. I mean, Spinaches, I think, lasted less than a year. Um, Low-profile bikes came along in the 80s, didn't they? With then disc wheels and then and then you know the, the 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 bar extensions triathlon bars as they were called originally from 1989 onwards so you had disc wheels low profile bikes the triathlon bars all, all coming along in the same decade and we're talking now about you know that's 30 years ago that's 30 years these bikes have been used it would be it'd be strange now to 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 turn the clock back you know to the early 80s which in effect is what the uci would be doing although you know, road bikes in terms of aerodynamics have developed a lot, a lot since then too. Um, so I don't, I don't really, although I 
I kind of applaud Chris Froome for raising this and, and bringing it out in the way that he's done. Uh, and I kind of would support it, I think. I don't really see it happening. Um, but I would, as I say, be interested to speak to the people in the industry, some of the manufacturers about uh, the time trial bikes, because you know what they're interested in are, are bikes that are going to make them the most money shift the most units and gravel bikes for example have have done that you know they've they've been kind of the other way around where um the, there has been a, a mass market developing for that very quickly um and it's now starting to be part of the professional scene too um i, I wonder if the balance when it comes to time trial bikes is more tilted to professional rather than the, the mass market well, yeah, I talking last week about how the broad ecosystem of gravel races um, does uh, appeal to the manufacturers of gravel bikes. Uh, a listener emailed in Brad Tip to make the very valid point that uh, we Pitt. don't see riders. Brad Tip, oh, sorry. Daniel, T I double P. Brad Tip. Yeah, <laughs> and he made a very valid point that the riders don't uh, race on gravel-specific bikes at Strada Bianca, or uh, we didn't see any, uh, not to my knowledge, we didn't see any in Spain uh, the last few days uh, where they've, they've had a gravel-specific race and also gravel in a stage race. Um, but it's I, I was kind of making the broader point that it's all part of the ecosystem. Having gravel stages and gravel races visible with the top riders riding, it does draw that link between the equipment available and um the the uh you know you know people's um you know recognition of, of the brands i guess and so it's all feeding into that ecosystem and i think when we see Filippo gana switching from a, a bike with disc brakes midway through a stage to rim brakes which is a little bit lighter for that final climb to montandelure you know there is a clearly uh, you know a deep kind of technological aspect to um cycling riders want to make tweaks mid stages and and have the most specific and most appropriate equipment available and so these are all questions that the uci is trying to legislate for and accommodate uh, in real time with trends developing all of the time so it's a it is a tricky one but i like i say you know froome's comments were very interesting and it was it's good that that somebody has raised the point especially when uh, it's the riders who are taking the risks you know no one forces them to um i suppose the, the sport in its way does force the riders to squeeze every bit out of themselves whether it's in racing or training and that does come with an element of risk and if that can be mitigated in some way uh, great uh, and, and it should be but banning time trial bikes i'm not sure would necessarily solve this particular problem because riders will still adopt extreme positions and then um it's a case of implementing more legislation then what do you do do you do you penalize riders for not looking ahead of them well, you know that that's uh i mean the uci opening have, a can of worms you know, isn't it yeah last year with the the, the banning the sitting on the top tube they, they've tried to outlaw certain positions haven't they and um, we should say that chris Froome wasn't calling for a ban on time trial bikes and if you want to True. hear uh, or indeed see his comments on this really interesting i thought um have a look at his youtube channel you'll see in his latest um did he call it a vlog um from on his youtube channel uh, and it's uh, part of a sort of wider update from chris Froome on his um on his season we know where this is all heading 10 years from now it'll be everyone the whole peloton in a spinning studio 
And before we before we conclude, chaps, um, before I forget, just a quick hop back to clarification corner, not corrections corner. Olympic motto: faster, higher, stronger. And also, Domenico Pozzoviva changed his name before he turned pro. Just referring to something I said much earlier. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thanks very much indeed to Science and Sport for their support of the Cycling Podcast. If you'd like 25% off all your Science and Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout enter the discount code SISCP25. Lionel, uh, you must have got through a few Science and Sport products this week because you've done a big and quite eventful bike ride. I did, yes. Um, I set myself a challenge to ride two reasonably long days back-to-back, about 112 kilometres each way. I went to Canvey Island in Essex um, uh, for uh, reasons that, uh, well, it turned out to be a pointless trip. Now elude you. Well, yeah, well, exactly, because I I, I decided to combine it with a trip to watch uh, my non-league football team in action, and the match was postponed because the weather on the way was absolutely terrible. Torrential rain all the way, uh, didn't let up at all, and so I didn't even stop for lunch. So all I had for sustenance on the way was uh, science and sport products, and I was incredibly glad that I had a, a pocket stuffed full of uh, the the strawberry flavored energy bake i also had one of the the way 20 protein smoothies and um just a, an, an energy gel just to see me over the line just as it was getting really uh, sort of cold and miserable towards the end of my ride and then on the way back the following day it was a block headwind so quite an eventful couple of days in the pre-storm weather here in the uk i wouldn't call a head i wouldn't call a headwind in the uk eventful I wouldn't say that constitute. I would say that's pretty routine. <laughs> that it's windy in the UK. You, uh, we, we, we've also spoken about our new collaboration with Map Clothing. Um, so it's a great opportunity to tell us how you got on with that as well. And we, we should say that we've been working with Map on some very exciting plans, which we will be uh, revealing shortly. Uh, we have, yeah. Well, I was wearing the deep winter. Uh, bib tights and and base layer long sleeve base layer and jacket and gloves and honestly uh, they were similar lifesavers I was uh, you know I was toasty warm um, right to the end of my ride they got me through four and a half hours in uh, as I say pretty much non-stop and fairly heavy rain so uh, a big thumbs up for the winter kit designs conceived in Melbourne but they can stand up to uh, some of the worst weather that Britain can throw at them. Well, there we go. There's the test. Uh, before we move on, I uh, just mentioned a, an email that I got from David Yang, Artistic Director at Newburyport Chamber Music Festival. David writes occasionally and um, always appreciate hearing from him. Thank you, David, for your kind comments. Um, he forwarded a, a blog that he's written for the Chamber Music Festival that he runs near Boston. And he mentions the cycling podcast in his blog. Um, but one line caught my eye. He says, I know Daniel has said he hates violins. So he probably I don't know like where this came music. from. I, I'm Can you put the record straight on this, I'm Daniel? I'm sure I've never mentioned violins in the podcast. It's a fair assumption. It might be, but it's wrong. <laughs> he hates everything except violins. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, um, let's hear from Richard Plug, the managing director of the Yumba Visma team. Um, I got in touch with him partly because I want to ask him about their new service course. I'm sure a lot of you saw the drone footage of uh, the new service course um, and a sort of tour inside an incredible complex with workshops, storage, cafe, offices, conference rooms, a, a real not like anything we've ever seen before in professional cycling. And I was curious to ask Richard Plug about how that's come about and um, the planning that's gone into it. And we're not going to hear him talking about it, but he just said that it's you know, obviously a long-term plan that they've put together, a real sign of their intent in terms of their planned longevity, um, but also a revenue raiser. Um, you know, cycling teams don't, tend to have physical bases and um, they don't have stadiums like football teams and other sports teams um, this is very much intended to be a um, facility that that brings in revenue to the team through renting offices through holding events through the cafe through the shop and um, so a really interesting concept and i'm hoping to be able to visit at some point and get a proper tour and uh, find out how that's going because it's something that teams have wrestled with forever how do they make money out of their out of their brand uh, and this this could be one part of the answer who knows but i also asked uh, richard plug about this season ahead um you know they've beefed up their classics team to support wout van art they've selected their tour de france team already which is something they've done the last couple of years um jonas fingergal and primoz roglic in that team um, and i asked him about that i asked him about jonathan Vauter's recent comments where he compared um, Roglic to the Sean Kelly of his generation thought he would never win the Tour de France um, so I asked him about that he also mentions uh, Tom Dumoulin um, and whether he's got his mojo back to, to become a Grand Tour contender again because we were we were wondering about about that whether Dumoulin might go in a different direction um, but apparently not and he will ride the Giro of course this year we're going to hear from Richard Pluga and then we'll come back and We'll hear from a former Yumbo Visma rider, George Bennett. But um, here first is Richard Pluga. With the service course, our business peloton, which we started as a good uh, home, let's say, a uh, stadium. Um, uh, we have uh, room for, for presentations for for other companies. Uh, companies are coming to us and uh, w- wants to do uh, yeah, a presentation for their own company. So it, it's also been used already a couple of times for for uh, companies who, uh, who want to see, uh, you know, a cycling team as an inspirational area, uh, let's say, and, and, and have their own meeting here in, in our in our offices. So that's also how we try to to uh, to build a new uh, new business model. You know, what what do you expect from uh, Tom de this year? He's obviously going to the the Giro. Is he going to be the the Grand Tour contender of, of a few years ago, or can you see his career going in a slightly different direction? What do you think? No, I believe that he can. He can be back. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the the joy is back. Um, he is uh, really training a lot. His pace is uh, after last year uh, and and last year's uh, and last winter. His base is is really good again, and yeah, it's it's a phenomenal uh, talent, of course. So. <clears throat> yeah, I, I believe that that what he did, he can still do, um, and uh, yeah, the, the time will tell. But but what we see in the training, and what we see uh, uh, in his output, he is he is yeah, 
he will be back at uh, at the same level. With this difference, is that he is uh, uh, really enjoying it uh, now, and he's making his yeah he he has the steer in his own hands again, um, which he lost a little bit with his former team, mm -hmm. and uh, he, he can, uh, yeah he's he's really uh, the, the yeah the owner of his own uh, of his own life again, and that uh, that makes him really happy uh, with what he's doing. So I, I believe that he he might be even stronger because of that. There's no burden on him uh, in in that in that sense. It was interesting what you said about the the influence that Primoz Roglic had had on him. Um, you know, to the outside world, Roglic is not um, sometimes the most demonstrative of people, but it, it's clear. You know, from within the team, he is he is a, a very kind of inspiring leader in the way that he the way that he rides, the way that he conducts himself as well. I guess that's something you've been aware of for several years. But is it something that you've noticed? Because we noticed at the Vuelta this year in particular, last year rather, um, a sort of almost a new maturity about him. I don't know if you notice any changes in him in the last year or so. Yeah, he's less um, uh, cautious. Uh, a couple. Of, he was already in, internally. Uh, I said it before, probably, but the, the first moment I saw him in uh, 2015, I believe it was, um, <clears throat> when we uh, added him to the team. In the first moment, the first hour I spoke to him, I thought, oh, "This is the, this is a real leader. This is uh, an idol," and. Uh, <clears throat> um, uh, and he, he he grew in that role more and more within the team. So internally, we know this already, uh, yeah, indeed from from 2016 onwards. Uh, but I think <clears throat> the last year or the year before, he, he also shrugged off a little bit his his, uh, his harness or his his uh, cautiousness in the press, and and he's a little bit more open to the to the outside world as well. And then, uh, then you see what we already saw uh, internally for a couple of years. And yes, he's he's a he's a big leader. Mm. He's a big leader. Can he win the Tour de France? That's a provocative question because Jonathan Vauters recently <laughs> uh, shared the view that he he sees him as a Sean Kelly of his generation, a rider who can win almost everything. But the Tour de France may elude him. He went very close, of course, a couple of years ago. And um, you know, do you still believe that he can win the Tour de France? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, very simple. Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know who, who the guy was who said it, but uh, yeah. Jonathan Jonathan Waters. Yeah, um, mm. that's his view. Um, I mean, you've. I, I would not recommend to have views on other riders uh, from mm. other teams, uh, but anyway. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, you know, you've 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 continued this tradition of naming the the tour team quite early. Um, Vingegaard, obviously, um, very impressive last year. Um, you know, having the two of them potentially going as as almost dual leaders. Um, is that is that do you think going to obviously in, increase your chances? Are there any potential problems in managing that that you see, or is it something that you've spoken to both those riders about how it, how it will work? Yeah, of course, and that's that's a formula we already use for a couple of years now. That, that we speak a lot with everybody already in uh, the, the last month, so so November, December, um, and we we uh, as I'd like to say, uh, we put everything on the table. We want every critic, every thought, uh, negative or positive, 
we want everything on the table to to have the the potential the potential to discuss it to to have the opportunity to discuss it and and to make sure that that we know what the thoughts are uh, with it or that role for someone um and and uh, that's what we did and that's what we did in the last years and and uh, everybody is always at the end of a lot of discussions and a lot of uh, talking sessions, everybody can uh, can put this uh, autograph under under the under the plan. So uh, I'm I'm really confident that we can do that uh, in the coming tour without any problems because we discussed all the scenarios, all the problems that might arise, etc. Yeah, it was interesting. Jonathan Vaught has made that comment about Primoz Roglic in uh well to the cycling podcast last year didn't he and we put that out it obviously didn't get the didn't provoke enough of a reaction so Vorters repeated it on jv versus Um, jv jonathan Vorters versus jumbo Visma. it's a tricky one this isn't it it's all all about self-loathing really (laughs) (laughs) talking about other people's riders is a is a um, well, it's a minefield, isn't it? Really, it's it's never going to work out terribly well, I don't think. But um, I guess as as journalists, it's always interesting to hear what people think of the people that they're competing against. Um, I happen to think there's some validity to what uh, Vorta says. You know, Roglic has sort of mastered the Vuelta, but can he step up a level? to do the same at the, the Tour de France it's a bit like the video game where you just can't quite um, you know, beat the big baddie in the final level I mean the 2020 Tour he did go pretty close you know it's not as if he's uh, been a million miles away I mean Sean Kelly never went that close to winning the Tour de France um, so it's a bit of a stretch I think to compare him with Sean Kelly also Sean Kelly won one Grand Tour um, Roglic has now won three so I don't I would I don't think the comparison is valid. Um but I and I think, you know, nobody would dispute that Roglic is capable of winning the Tour de France. Um had Pogacar not been there in twenty twenty, he would have won the Tour de France. So I think we all agree, chaps, that one key ingredient well is gonna be his team and what Richard Plugger said there, the way he he justified this sort of curious policy they've got of naming the team months upstream of the Tour de France. Um it is intriguing because there are teams that have an approach that's at the antipodes of that. I mean, I remember a conversation with Matt Winston of DSM at the Giro last year when we talked about this um, because that is a team which has done the opposite and they've been very cagey in the past about even saying, I remember last year they left it a long time before revealing which one of their riders was going to do which Grand Tour. And... um, Matt Winston's answer, what he said was that, well, football teams announce their lineup an hour before a match. Why on earth would you announce your team for the most important race in the year um, months in advance? But having said that, Richard Plugger did give quite a convincing argument for, you know, why one would do that with, you know, this sort of forecasting all of the imponderable imponderables that might arise and there were different dynamics that might develop and and knowing in advance um, how each of those is going to be dealt with I mean it sounded there as though they have discussed the eventuality for example of Jonas Vingegaard proving stronger than Primoz Roglic and they will know what they're going to do if such a scenario does arise and I think for the riders it means they're not chasing results 
uh, in this early part of the season, which might ultimately take away from their ability to perform at their best at the Tour. You know, those riders all know their job is to be at their best at the Tour de France. I can completely understand telling the riders and internally announcing mm. the team and saying this is what we're working towards, these are the races you're going to be doing and this is how you're going to get there to the Tour. But announcing it publicly, I, I don't really see the value in that other than maybe it just stops people asking the question. I mean, that must get quite irritating as well. Who, who's doing the Tour, who's doing the Giro? And it is, it is the kind of the fodder of, of us in the media, isn't it? Um, wanting to know which riders are going to line up for which Grand Tour. It's one of the, the consistent storylines of the first half of the year. So maybe they just feel that even if it doesn't end up being the case, which is, you know, it didn't quite turn out to be the case, did it? Last time they named their team in advance, there was at least one change wasn't there before they got yeah green to edge the have had France. this experience as well haven't they um bike exchange what the team now known as bike exchange jaco they did it a couple of years ago i forget which one of the yates brothers but they or chavez they announced who was going to lead in a particular grand tour and it turned out not to not to be the case i mean last year the cycling podcast announced its tour team and then i didn't make it so i mean it's fraught with difficulty this it's fraught with difficulty. You think Ineos will be studying the Jumbo Visma lineup and maybe changing their number five as a result? <laughs> who knows? Uh, a rider, another rider who is formerly Jumbo Visma, who hopes to be going to the Tour de France, but that's not confirmed. But that would be the plan. Uh, is George Bennett? He's moved across UAE Team Emirates. I put it to him that, that was a bit like moving from Real Madrid to Barcelona. Um, the two sort of big teams likely to go oh, Lionel's winning hopefully the hope, two teams likely hopefully the, the, there are actually a lot of footballers that, that have done that over the years more than people would maybe imagine but the most famous example of that turning very sour and nasty and unsavory was it was it Lionel uh, the Barcelona fans or the Real Madrid fans threw with a, a, a pig's head on the pitch when Luis Figo turned out for the other um, for um, the other team I hope that doesn't happen in the Tour de France I hope we won't see Pig's well, head we'll flying. Yeah, Dutch, Dutch corner. Dutch corner. I'll do it. George Bennett. Um, watch out. I don't know what kind of reception you're going to get there. A pig's Maybe head it's Slovenian corner on Alpduez. A bit of a bit of Dutch beer is more likely. But um, yeah, he. it's not quite the same as cycling, is it? He spoke to me recently from New Zealand, where he is at the moment. He's coming back, on his way back at the moment, to ride the UAE Tour, his first race for his new team. And his first race alongside Tadej Pogacar, you know, really interesting to go from uh, Roglic's side to Pogacar's side, I would have thought. And uh, I thought it'd be interesting to ask him about those two riders, about moving teams and much else besides. Always an interesting person to speak to, George Bennett. Um, so here he is looking ahead to his debut and uh, appearing alongside Tadej Pogacar this year. You just got throughout the week to just sort of have these nice little interactions with guys that you wouldn't necessarily do if you had to get out the door and go training that morning um so it was like and a lot of these guys are like you know you naturally draw up rival lines right like uae versus jumbo versus Ineos, and naturally like at least i find myself as like a quite like a a tribal rider you know what i mean like it's, it's like us versus them and that's how what kind of you know, like we were a team on Jumbo and everyone was out to get us. So I only cared about the guys in my jersey. And and that's kind of like how it goes against your rivals. And so you, you've had these run-ins with these guys where it's been your job to, 
to race against them directly because they are the direct rivals. And then so you sort of have to go in, meet these new guys, and then a little bit it's like, oh, I remember when we kind of had that rub up in the race, and, and you know what I mean? And <laughs> any awkward, it, any awkward like, encounters in the, in, the, in the corridors of your, I don't know, 15-star yeah. hotel. <laughs> <laughs> and Yeah, so in, in the end it was like, so I was a little bit like, oh, you know, I'm definitely coming in from the enemy's team because these guys are just, everyone's the same as me, you know, everyone. They've been UAE. And they've had to defend Tour de France titles, and and I'm the new kid coming in, and straight away there was just this real accepting vibe of like, right, you're one of us now, and it's it's now us versus them, and it was great, and you know I just got to got to meet guys and and see guys that you'd never see or you'd never, and it's also like an element of guys like you might not like as competitors but as a teammate they're, they're great guys like a good example is like in, J- in Yumbo like I really got on well with Jos Van Enden for example but I imagine if you had to race him his job is like one of the protectors you know he would be a tough guy to race against but as a teammate you couldn't ask for a better guy and and so in UAE there's I might be one of those examples or there might be another bunch of examples you know where you actually become like these guys everyone's a really nice guy everyone's really cool but you if you're racing against them you see a different side and people see a different side of me and so you have to sort of develop all these relationships and stuff and I thought it was quite good to have this week where we you know we didn't have any pressure of having to you know do five hours and do efforts and do testing and all this other stuff it was just pretty chilled and you meet these guys but yeah I mean I think there still is, you know, it's still really early days. I mean, I still, I didn't do the training camp with them in January, um, but they've just finished. And the, I think the rest of the UAE guys, like the UAE tour guys, I think they're potentially at altitude camp right now. So I'm the only one that's not doing altitude before that race. So, you know, I think the, the next step is to, to race with these guys and then and then really sort of um, start to work as a unit sort of going into the big races of the year. I mean, was it was it a wrench to leave Yumbo Visma because you've been there a long time, but you've also been with them on on their journey from, you know, yeah. not so good to very good. Um, so you've really been very closely identified with that jersey, uh, with that journey, and, w- and with that team. Um, you know, it's yeah, a, bit, I came a big deal the... to to leave. Yeah, and no, it was, and it really was. I mean, I came in at the ground floor when the first year Jumbo Visma, and man, we were shit ass. We were this such a bad team, and and we had like. You know, I remember back then we were just in the sort of losing mindset a little bit. And at the end of that year, to, to the credit of Marine and Mathieu and I guess Richard Plugger, you know, they went, right, we just have to set these outrageously ambitious goals. And they did set these goals. And we sort of went, oh, yeah, like, that's a nice PowerPoint presentation. But then we sort of started buying into them. And then we got a bit of momentum in 2016. And then we were away. After that, 2017, we really started started to move quite well i personally did and then the team followed 2018 you we had i think fourth and fifth in the tour and then you know it just went from there upwards and um you know it's been a big journey and obviously you get to know a lot of people in seven years and if you don't make good friends in seven years and you know well you, you might be the asshole in that situation you know <laughs> 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 you presumably wouldn't have stayed there for seven years if you. Yeah, exactly. Friends. Yeah, I would have left a long yeah. time ago. Um, but but yeah, well, it was it was tough to leave. But I think 
it was only tough temporarily until, you know, it was tough until, like, the, the tough part was, you know, I'd left Jumbo and hadn't started with UAE. You know, so I was still doing races with Jumbo or whatever, but I wasn't really, you know, I definitely knew I was on the out now. I was leaving. Um, and I didn't really have, like, this, you know, like, I was still getting trained by my coach and I was still, you know, whatever. But I didn't really, you know, like, in my head, I sort of, it was really hard to think, okay, I'm not working on anything for the future here. This is just doing my time through this part. And then, you know, and then once I started now in sort of December, got home to New Zealand, it's been great. And I haven't, I haven't really given it a second thought, actually. And I mean, as you mentioned earlier, you're kind of going from, you know, if it was a football, it would be, you know, Real Madrid to Barcelona sort of thing. You know, you're going from one uh, Tour de France favourites team to another. And, and um, I mean, is there an element of, was there an element of Jumbo Visma being kind of sensitive to that, to, to being very aware that you would be, you know, taking taking their secrets with you? And, and from UAE's point of view, are they have they been keen to sort of learn a bit about how Jumbo Visma operate or, or does it not really work like that? <laughs> it's a good question. I thought it would be like that, but no, not at all. Um, UAE, it's, you know, that it, they, like, they, they, I think they're just really confident in their systems and they didn't, not once have I, you know, not, they know exactly how I trained on Jumbo because they had my training peaks and they went, they looked through everything obviously and go, mm, we don't, you know, looking at our testing of you, we don't believe this is the best way forward for you. Um, and I'm just, you know, I'm back in my new trainer, you know, and, and, and really, I obviously have input into it and say, you know, great communication with them and say, this is what I feel, this is, um, yeah, but you know, I've got a new nutritionist who, who's really like onto it and he, he, didn't ask how I ate, he sort of, you know, how we did it before. I mean, a little bit, but not really, you know, like, like it wasn't like, okay, you hear tells all the secrets. There's been no secrets because I think all the things that Jumbo did, they made quite a song and dance about them. They weren't, you know, it wasn't, they, they had to have a reputation about being absolutely cutting edge, which they are. I mean, they were non-compromising with, with like, uh, one of the biggest advantage, I think, was aerodynamics, and that was all Machu Hebor. And he was doing, you know, like when Shimano couldn't produce a fast enough wheel, they didn't think twice about going and buying a vision wheel or an aero coach wheel or, you know, and they just went and bought them. And sort of it was ultimatum to the sponsors, you know, until you can make it this fast, do it. And so the whole world could see that, you know, because they showed up to a race with aero coach wheels or vision wheels. Or, you know, they tell everybody about the food coach app yeah because you know it was yeah. helping sell jumbo products or even things like ketones you know every cycle news article yeah they're, they're pretty transparent know, weren't they um yeah that, very that's, transparent. So that's no... probably a legacy of, of rabobank as well i think you know i think that came from yeah i think so pluga as well i think so i think richard took over in a, a great way and has gone right we're going to just be you know I, I remember it with the the training camp thing, you know, and we had, there was the incident with the sleeping pills on training camp with Lobato and then 
that you know they just went right we're going to front foot this this is what's happened at our camp and i thought you know it was it's a very like noble thing and i think it's it served them really well but what what i guess it you know trickle down effect is is that um there's not really secrets on jumbo in terms of their speed comes from the equipment from good trainers and from huge investment into nutrition into aerodynamics and to altitude camps, you know. So everybody knows that, and, and it's nothing. And UAE have gone, right, well, we have great equipment. We have altitude camps. We have a unreal nutritionist who's, you know, the attention to detail that I'm getting here now is, is you know, infinitely more involved than it was, you know, in the last few years for me. So there's nothing really new on that front, and I guess it's sort of, to the discretion of trainers, how they tweak their athletes. But what I'm, what I'm sort of realizing pretty quickly is like, there's many ways to get strong. And, and basically if you're quite good and you ride your bike a lot and you ride it hard, you're going to get to a pretty good level. And then, and then what I guess we're trying to do is, is the last 2%. So basically rearrange everything from the start to try and get, you know, the end result is, you know, you do all this different stuff now so that you can be 2% better when you need to be, you know, let's say you build a bigger base or you, whatever. And, and so it's really hard for me to say like, oh, this is working really well for me and I'm flying because sometimes it's a long-term goal to, to get better and to work on all these weaknesses. And, you know, you might be neglecting the stuff like the stuff that would bring you up in a couple of weeks of training that can really spike your form hard. And, and you're just saving that and then you do it. And then when you do it, it you come up even higher. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's really, it's early to say on the, the training front, but I, but I think when you, you know, you compare the overall thing from resources, from, you know, nutrition, from, from equipment, from aero testing, from, I, I just really think that, you know, Jumbo have got this great reputation because maybe they were early adopters of it and they got a lot of credit for it. But I think you'll find in pro cycling teams now with a good budget, it's happening everywhere, you know? Imagine you are riding the tour and, and helping Pogacar and, and he's up against Roglic and, and it's a battle between them. Would that be would that be strange for you to be up against your old your old team and, and, and you know, having to do a really important job? Oh, I think I would really froth on that. I think that would you know, that would really um I would really think that I would love that situation and I think that will be a situation you know it's a really likely situation because you know you've got Primoz and and that whole jumbo team and they've you know they've gone their way I've gone mine and it is kind of the ultimate rivalry isn't it the two Slovenians going at it um probably the two favorites and yeah I think I would really relish the opportunity to you know to just just for the love of competition that I like cycling so much. I love racing. I love the sort of drama of it that there is this, um, you know, it's, it's almost poetic, right? The two, the two best cycling GC riders going head to head. And, and there is some kind of, you know, just, just for that to be a situation. And I'm sure I'll have to have a pretty important role in, in guiding them through the mountains there. And, you know, I won't think twice about having to, you know, I won't feel bad for Jumbo, just like they wouldn't feel bad for me. Um, 
you know, if, if, if they beat me, you know, so it's, 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 it's all sort of professional and stuff, but it's also like, you know, I don't know. It, it's kind of, you want to, it's like when you, for a very strange analogy, the only one I can think of off the top of my head, but imagine you, you know, after a relationship breaks up, you know, you want to, you want to be the one that moves on well and has the happy family and not the one that's, an alcoholic down the <laughs> down at <of> the pub. <laughs> uh, so yeah, you might as well your your exes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I just I I I I let let you I'm let you go, uh, George. But um, I wanted to ask you about those two Slovenians. I mean, Roglic obviously really key to that journey that Yumbovisma have been on. I mean, what what can you say about Roglic having ridden and 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 worked closely with him? What you know in a in a in a in a sentence or two? What 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 impressions do you leave the team with of of Roglic himself as a person well I, I I guess the crazy thing is I don't have a huge insight into him which which almost says quite a lot you know um other than he's a really nice guy like I really have a lot of respect for him um I really think he is so measured which is maybe his biggest his biggest sort of quality, he's measured, reserved, you know, thinks about things, but, you know, at a distance, always, um, which was probably the stark contrast, you know, um, whereas, you know, and so I think that he, you know, he's one of the toughest guys in the sport and, you know, I really enjoyed my time riding with him, but, you, you know, you'll, like some guys, you you get home from a race and you'll even be on the phone with them in a few days later and, you know, chatting about this and the next one and this and that. But, you know, we, we just had a really good relationship that was at, at bike races and I really, you know, respected how he was a leader. And um, Whereas I think today's uh, Pogacar, you know, I mean, I, again, I don't know him super well, but he's, he's, he's youthful. He's, he's more sort of there for a good time you know, and just happens to be really good at it, you know, and I think that someone summed it up pretty well when he's like, basically like, oh, he's just a, he's a kid that, you know, he's a, he, he still is a kid that is just really good at bike racing, but in times of stress, he's just got the coolest head on him you can ever imagine from a, from a guy that age. And, um, again, such a nice guy. So I, I just, yeah, I mean, I think I'm very fortunate that I'm not, uh, you know, I didn't have to do too much time working for assholes, and you know, from 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 my impression of today, it's I'm really looking forward to working with him going forward, and and that can be a rare thing, you know. I think cycling it's a little bit like tennis, you know, you have to be a bit tweaked to be quite good at it. Um, but you know, fortunately, I've I've been in these positions where where you know I've been around good guys, and and there's been these good environments essentially, so. Um, yeah, I think there's definitely a marked difference between the two and, and, and people will always try and ask, you know, or compare one between the other, but I think, you know, very different people, but both great guys. Surely, Richard, if we're going to do football analogies, we ought to get them right. Uh, Team UAE ought to be Manchester City 
Manchester City owned by Sheikh Mansour of the United Arab Emirates, of course. And, of course, the, the sort of new money in football, aren't they? Which UAE team or Emirates you, are you in the last couple of years. PSV Eindhoven. Oh God, this is well, it's a Ajax. tricky one, that, because in, in soccer, the Dutch teams are kind of, you know, faded glory trying to get back to their best days whereas Jumbo Visma are kind of at the cutting edge aren't they at the moment so I don't know uh, I guess a, a Dutch version of um, yeah I mean one of the Galacticos I suppose but a Dutch version struggling a bit there before just before you wrestlers back to the Los Angeles rich. Rams yeah but just before you wrestlers back to Cycling Rich, um, I should inform the listeners that it was Luis Figo was playing for Real Madrid. And if you want to see the Barcelona fans pelting him with a, a pig's head, then it, the clip is on YouTube. I, I feel like this go, should go without saying, but you know we obviously don't want to see anyone pelting the riders with any kind of it. meat products. We don't condone that. Pigs if, you're bringing spare, if you're bringing spare meat products to the Tour de France, um, I'll let you know where I'll be. You can, can just hand we'll have an amnesty on meat products. Yeah. The, gi- the giant castle that will be awarded to the rider with the performance of the year at the end of the year. Um, I mean, George, George Bennett, excellent there on lots of things. The the you know the strangeness of joining a new team, becoming teammates and, and friends I suppose with, with writers who he'd previously, ba- previously battled with I liked his mention of Jos van Emden as somebody who he'd loved being a teammate of but suspects he wouldn't like being a, an opponent of um, and it's one of the interesting dynamics about professional sport I suppose um, I've heard that but, about a yeah, few riders in the past Fletcher was another one people said that mm. about Terpstra is another one mm. um, and obviously UAE Tour is a big, a big race for him and Tadej Pogacar it would have been more interesting had Egan Bernal been riding it as planned this would have been a a first meeting between Pogacar and Bernal sadly that will not now happen and a lot of the interest now is on the sprinting isn't it because it's a real um, star studded sprint field the only rider missing Fabio Jakobsen really of the the top class sprinters who we've already seen winning this year sorry Lionel so anyone else Caleb Ewan as well missing for the first Mm -hmm. time in a while he's going to do Kerner Brussels Kerner instead mm. and of obviously Gaviria of course now out so yeah. sorry I'll take it back but Ka- Cavendish Dylan Grunewagen mm. uh, various others um, it's going to be quite an interesting race from a sprinting point of yeah, view yeah I think th- there are going to be well there, there are going to be some very clear winners and losers among the sprinters because it's such a, a deep field with um, Bennett, Sam Bennett riding for Bora DeMar mm. there with his full lead out train or a pretty good lead out train um, Gronewegen, as you say, Rich, and someone I think is going to come home with a bit of a bloody nose um, among the sprinters or, or cut down to size. And, you know, we talked last week, won't go into it now in detail, but this this question of um, Quick Step Alpha Vinyl and who, which of their sprinters are they going to take to the tour? We think it's possibly, probably going to be Jakobsen, but Cavendish looked fantastic, I thought, in Oman. He only really got the opportunity to really unwind his sprint on one occasion and he won that day the other couple of um, stages he was sort of impeded Um, but you know if Cavendish wins two stages and beats the likes of Groenewegen and Bennett in the UAE um, he's also going to have their sort of A-team lead out in the UAE where he's going to have Michael Mm. Morku so that might sort of muddy the waters even more 
Yeah, I was going to say, I think his sprint training uh, in Oman was slight, slightly makeshift. We saw him remonstrating with his teammates at a couple of finishes. I thought he was unlucky. Uh, sorry, I thought he was unlucky, but I also thought Ricesi was unlucky. On the final stage in Oman, uh, Ricesi was um, relegated in the end for impeding. Cavendish, Cavendish was very, very cross. But Ricesi had been the acting as lead out man but he, he was still sprinting because he was still you know he was still right up there so it wasn't as if he he'd peeled off and taken Cavendish out and um, he was still sprinting for the line and you know there was a gap there Cavendish uh, it was maybe a little bit too small for Cavendish to go through but it seemed a, a racing incident rather than a, a, any kind of um irregular sprinting really from Ricesi there I thought he was a bit unlucky what do you chaps expect on the overall is it going to be another the now sort of annual pogcineration in the desert um, very important race of course for team UAE or I mean I expect Adam Yates as he was last year Adam Craig David Yates the the master of seven day racing um, I expect him to be very strong and possibly to be Pogacar's biggest threat. Yeah, Joel Almeida as well is is riding, which is interesting, isn't it? Because if he was on a different team, you'd expect him to be his biggest rival. Um, it all looks set up for a, a Pogcineration. Despite his recent COVID, he seems to be recovered and uh, don't expect anything. It's difficult looking at the start sheet to see any real um, opponents for Pogacar there. Just lastly, before we wrap up on uh, the Tour of Oman, because a quick step alpha vinyl, as you would expect, are, well, as soon as Richard said it's been a barren old start to the season for them, they've, they've won here, there and everywhere, haven't they? They've won more races than anyone else. I thought Fausto Masnada's win was impressive. But a, a quick word for Uno X as well, because they've uh, been doing very well. We heard from their young Norwegian rider, Tobias Halland Johansson, who won a stage of the Etoile de Bessage last week, and they got... Uh, and bigger win, really. Anthony Charmig won a stage of the Tour of Oman. And Jakob Hinsgall won the Tour of Antalya in Turkey as well. So they're going really well uh, early doors in the season. Early doors, Indeed. sorry. A red card for that, sorry. Indeed. Indeed. Well, listen, chaps, we better wrap it up because I've got to get a, a, a train uh, from Watford. Um, a very brief fleeting visit. But it's left a very powerful impression on me, Lionel. You can't leave after 12 noon, Richard. That's just the rule. You're stuck here now. Well, my train is delayed, so that may well be true. <laughs> anyway, um, thank you very much. We'll be back next week. Uh, I'm sure we'll be following UAE Tour next week. We're going to have a couple more interviews next week with big, big hitters from the cycling world. Um, until then, thank you very much, Lionel. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for coming to Watford. I really appreciate it. Uh, I feel honoured. There'll be a blue plaque on this building one day, I think. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. 
Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today.